Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome, listeners, and thanks for joining us on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. In this episode, we're counting down the top five supernatural tales from the Sunshine State. You'll be encountering the weirdest of the weird in the state of Florida. Ghosts? Yes. Cryptids? Yes. UFOs? Of course. After listening to our episode, you'll either want to stay away or be on the first flight out to investigate for yourself. So join us as we investigate the top paranormal stories Florida has to offer. But before we start, here's a reminder to check out the Paranormal Factor Podcast Facebook page. Every single day, Monday through Friday, there's new paranormal and supernatural material for you to explore. Fans of the show know it's the best place to find monsters, quizzes, film TV and book recommendations, and current paranormal news stories from around the world. Now, on to our episode. On Saturday, March the 24th, 1962, Edward Brian McCleary and four young companions left their homes in Fort Walton Beach, Florida for a diving expedition offshore from Pensacola. Their focus was the USS Massachusetts, a decommissioned battleship deliberately sunk by naval gunfire in January of 1921. About 2.5 miles from shore, it's a famous destination with scuba divers who enjoy exploring wrecks and a popular local destination for diving or snorkeling. Joining 16-year-old McCleary were 17-year-old Warren Sally Jr., 16-year-old Eric Rule, 15-year-old Larry Bill, and 14-year-old Bradford Rice. Aboard a rubber raft, the five companions paddled toward the Massachusetts, but they suddenly ran into unexpected currents, gale force winds, and a fog that left them stranded on a buoy anchored to the wreck. Brian published a detailed version of his story, My Escape from a Sea Monster, in the May 1965 issue of Fate magazine, three years after the event. It described the horror of the incident. After a time, the wind and the rain and the waves subsided, and a thick fog rolled in. McCleary describes the silence and stillness, writing, Not a wave rippled, not a fish broke water, not a seagull called. He said for the first time in his life he was really scared. Visibility was limited to 25 feet and there was no wind. McCleary says the water was unusually warm. Larry suddenly said, Shh, I hear a boat or something. As they listened, the air became filled with the odor of dead fish. They heard a large splash about 40 feet away. The wave that followed was large enough to break over the side of the raft. They heard a second splash and through the fog were able to make out an object that looked like a telephone pole with a bulb on top. It was about 10 feet out of the water. Then the object bent in half and dove under the water. There was a period of silence followed by a high-pitched whine coming out of the fog. Well, at this point, the boys panicked. They put on their fins and dove into the water. McCleary noted the surface was covered with patches of brown, crusty slime. 
The group swam toward the wreck, with McCleary and Rule in the lead. Behind them, they could hear splashing and hissing. Although the fog was clearing, it had begun to rain again. It was getting dark, and the waves were picking up. The first scream lasted maybe half a minute. Felly cried, It's got Brad! Then his voice was suddenly cut off. McCleary yelled back to Felly and Rice, but there was no response. Bill was now swimming with Rule and McCleary. Some time passed before McCleary became aware that Bill was no longer with them. Then a flash of lightning revealed the wreck of the Massachusetts. Another flash revealed Rule swimming ahead of McCleary toward the ship. Then the telephone pole creature surfaced next to Rule. McCleary said it had two small eyes. It opened its mouth and fell upon Rule, disappearing with him below the surface. McCleary alone reached the shore, spending the night in a World War II-era gun emplacement near Fort McRae, where a helicopter crew from Pensacola's Naval Air Station found him at 7.45 a.m. on Sunday. Three years after the alleged event, McCleary claimed he immediately shared his monster tale with personnel at Pensacola's Naval Hospital, where he was treated for shock and exposure to the elements. E.E. E. McGovern, a verified member of the Escambia County Search and Rescue Unit, allegedly listened in awe, then said, The sea has a lot of secrets. I believe you, but there's not much else I can do. Brian McCleary was depressed in the months after the event due to no one believing him. The trauma of whatever happened that day led to addictions to drugs and alcohol. He died in 2017, taking with him whatever the truth was of what happened on that day in 1962. This is just one of hundreds of paranormal stories from the state of Florida. Some are obscure and take some investigating to find, but others are readily known and repeated many times over. Stories like the Oviedo Lights, Bloody Bucket Bridge, The Devil's Chair, The Edgewater Lake Monster, The Grave of the Tallahassee Witch, The Key West Hanging Tree, and even a Florida Chupacabra. Like most states, Florida has plenty of tales to tell, but with so many, we're forced to pick just a handful to share. It's a subjective list to be sure. So with that in mind, let's dive into the Paranormal Factor Podcast Top 5 Florida Paranormal Stories. Number 5. The Ghost on the Sunshine Skyway Bridge In the Sunshine State of Florida, just south of Tampa, lies the imposing and magnificent Sunshine Skyway Bridge. Spanning Tampa Bay, the massive bridge is a familiar landmark to those visiting and living in the area. However, this bridge is more than just a giant piece of infrastructure. It has a collection of stories that's as astonishing as its engineering. The construction of the original Sunshine Skyway Bridge was completed in 1954. On September the 6th, traffic was able to use the new bridge to reach St. Petersburg from the west coast near Sarasota and vice versa. The bridge was expanded to four lanes in 1969 to accommodate an increase in traffic between the two cities. The over four-mile-long bridge span stood strong over the waterway for the next decade. Then in 1980, a series of tragedies struck, including a ramming of the bridge resulting in vehicles tumbling horrifically into the waters below. Thirty-five people lost their lives, and a new section of the bridge had to be built. With all of this death and sorrow, it's no surprise the Sunshine Skyway Bridge is known as one of the most haunted spots in Florida. 
It's believed that at least one of those ghosts lingers in the area. Many surprised motorists crossing the bridge are shocked to see a blonde woman standing in the road. Others have even said her image has been spotted in the backseat of their cars. Either way, the woman's spirit seems to be unable to escape the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. Most motorists pull over when they see the distraught young lady hitchhiking at the base of the bridge. As they get closer, they can see black eye makeup stains on her white t-shirt or dress, where she wiped tears away. Obviously in distress, the drivers often abandon their resolve of never picking up strangers and decide to give the troubled girl a ride. After all, it's a foggy night, and the 15-mile-long span of bridge and approaching roadway is an awfully long way for a young lady to walk alone. The mysterious blonde climbs into the vehicle with ease, usually taking a seat in the back. At first, she makes casual conversation, commenting on mundane observations such as the misty weather and the dangers associated with it. After all, wasn't it a morning like this one that triggered the mass tragedy in 1980 when a freighter hit the bridge and caused the deaths of those 35 people? As the vehicle gets closer to the top of the bridge, the woman becomes more and more agitated, her voice transitioning from relaxed to anxious and more intense. Finally, just as her presence is beginning to disturb the driver to the point of wanting to pull over, they look back to calm the woman, and she's gone, vanished into thin air. The hitchhiker is just one of many ghosts that haunt the span of the Skyway Bridge, but she is the best known. Any given night that's saturated with dense fog or soaked in pouring rain will lure this lonely, sad spirit to the enormous bridge over Tampa Bay. She is often seen looking longingly off the bridge. She's usually wearing a white dress and sometimes takes on a form so palpable that drivers will often pick her up thinking she's a real person. Many unexpected drivers have had eerie and unexplainable encounters. The long span of roadway hovers over waters that have seen terrible events, including many suicides. Unfortunately, it became one of the more common places in Florida to commit suicide. Since it was built, more than 200 people have jumped to their deaths from the bridge. Throughout the 1960s and 1970s, scores of motorists using the Sunshine Skyway Bridge claimed to see a young blonde lady dressed in a tight t-shirt in an off-white or tan outfit. She was poised to jump off one of the main spans and has been reported during both day and night many times when the structures are shrouded in fog. When conditions are right, police stations and toll booths are besieged with callers reporting a sad blonde woman who looks like she may jump. When sheriff's deputies investigate, no trace of the young lady is found either at the top of the bridge or in the waters below. Interestingly, these incidents also involve many out-of-state drivers, lending authenticity since they're not familiar with the local legends. Number four, the skunk ape. It is rightfully named for its supposed rotten egg stench. It walks on two legs and its whole body immersed in dark brown fur and is by all accounts massive in size. Of course, all of this information relies on hearsay, but some Florida folks swear they've seen the tall, foul-smelling swamp monster known as the skunk ape. Also known as the swamp ape and Florida Bigfoot, the skunk ape is a purported ape-like creature said to inhabit the forests and swamps of some southeastern states, but most notably Florida. 
The skunk ape is sometimes compared to and called the cousin of Bigfoot. As with Bigfoot, details have been presented in an attempt to prove the skunk ape's existence. They include circumstantial sightings, disputed photographs, audio and video recordings, and of course, footprints. The majority of mainstream scientists have historically discounted the existence of the skunk ape, considering it to be the result of a combination of folklore, misidentification, and hoax rather than a true living animal. But that hasn't stopped the skunk ape from seeping into the popular culture of Florida. It's commonly described as a bipedal, ape-like creature, approximately five to seven feet tall and covered in mottled reddish-brown hair. For those who have reported actually seeing the creature, it makes quite the impression. The first time Dave Sheely saw a skunk ape, he was 10 years old. It was in 1974, a few years after his father had come upon a set of footprints left by the creature. Dave was out deer hunting with his older brother Jack in the swamp behind his house in what's now Big Cypress National Preserve. I was walking across the swamp and my brother spotted it first, but I couldn't see it over the grass. I wasn't tall enough, Sheely says. Uh, my brother picked me up and I saw it about 100 yards away. We were just kids, but... We'd heard about it and knew for sure what we were looking at. It looked like a man, but completely covered with hair. He and his brother stared at the creature, stunned, but almost at the same time, as he tells it, rain began pouring down. The creature hurried away into the cypress trees scattered among the marsh. The fleeting moment left an indelible impression on the young Sheely, who's now over 50 years old. In the decades since, he and others have relentlessly pursued the elusive cryptid. By the way, you can check out the entire story of the skunk ape by checking out Season 2, Episode 51. Now, let's check out our next paranormal entrant. Number 3. The Gulf Breeze UFO Case Contractor Ed Walters said he had experienced a strange UFO encounter on Wednesday, November the 11th, 1987, and took five Polaroids of an object in the sky outside his Gulf Breeze home near Pensacola. When he saw the craft out his window hovering about 200 feet above the ground, he described it as being right out of a Steven Spielberg movie. He watched it land and deposit five aliens on the road. He later claimed an alien stared into his window and communicated with him in English and Spanish, allegedly via telepathy. He also stated a bright blue beam of light caused him to be lifted three feet off the ground. Walters gave the Gulf Breeze Sentinel a series of photographs he said he took of the UFO outside his home on November the 11th of 1987. He used the alias of Mr. X, Mr. Ed, or just Jim, preferring to remain anonymous due to concerns of being ridiculed and to protect his family. By 1989, Walters would publicly admit he was the photographer. On December the 2nd, Walters declared the immobilization and the blue beam happened again. He next stated that on February the 7th, 1988, he photographed a blue beam and his wife attempting to outrun it. Walters claimed that a humming in his head would foreshadow the arrival of UFOs. Over time, Walters and his family reported an astounding 19 sightings or encounters. Three months later, on May the 1st, 1988, Walters said he felt the UFO presence again while he was at Shoreline Park after midnight saw the UFO, and took a photo of it before losing consciousness for an hour. 
Walters would eventually claim that over time and multiple visits, he videotaped this UFO and also took 32 photographs of it. A Pensacola polygraph examiner who tested Walters in February of 1988 stated that Walters believes his photos are real. Author of UFO books Bud Hopkins interviewed Walters several times and proclaimed him genuine. Hopkins based this belief on his years of UFO research and interviewing witnesses. He could find nothing wrong with Walter's story, he said, other than it was, in his words, very bizarre. Hopkins claimed Walters had turned down a $100,000 book deal. Hopkins also felt because Walters passed a lie detector test and his business reputation was at risk, it was unlikely to be a hoax. The Pensacola area does have a history of UFO sightings. A Pensacola News Journal reporter discovered the first recorded sighting of UFOs in the area dated all the way back to March 31st of 1953. The journalist further reported decades of sightings reported in this area of Florida, but none of these caused the uproar, controversy, or national coverage that the Gulf Breeze sightings did. Number 2. Ghosts of St. Augustine Lighthouse The original St. Augustine Lighthouse was built in the 1600s by Spanish settlers, and its replacement, built in 1874, is a St. Augustine historic landmark visited by thousands of people each year. During its long history, several tragic events have occurred that many attribute to the unusually high level of paranormal energy and ghost sightings within the lighthouse and on its grounds. One of the first was when a lighthouse keeper fell to his death while painting the tower. During one of the visits from the Ghost Hunters TV show, they captured an apparition on film. Many believe that apparition to be the old keeper's ghost still watching over the lighthouse. One of the lighthouse's early keepers was Peter Rasmussen, a big fan of cigars. Rasmussen's ghost is one of the earliest reported phenomenon from the lighthouse. It's said staff and guests can still occasionally smell the smoke of his cigars all these years after his death. One of the more macabre legends involves a pair of girls, Eliza and Mary Pitty, who in the late 1800s drowned in the nearby water while their mother was working on lighthouse renovations. Laughter from the girls can still be heard at the top of the lighthouse late at night. If you're looking for a ghostly encounter, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better location than the St. Augustine Lighthouse. And number one, Robert the Doll. Well, we've saved the best for last. On a scale of 1 to 10, this tale rates a solid 11 and pegs out on our weirdometer. Robert Eugene Otto was a boy who grew up in Key West under the care of a nanny who allegedly practiced voodoo. In 1906, she gave him a gift, a 40-inch tall doll stuffed with wood, wool, and wearing a sailor outfit. For whatever reason, Robert decided to give the doll his own name and chose to be called Jean going forward. Yeah. That's weird. The home where Eugene lived, now called the Artist's House, is located at 534 Eaton Street in Key West and was built between 1890 and 1898. Gene considered Robert the Doll his best friend and whispered to it all the time. While he seemed like an ordinary cloth doll, it wasn't long before Robert was involved in strange and somewhat terrifying events. The first hint something strange was happening 
was one night when 10-year-old Gene awoke to find Robert the doll sitting at the end of his bed staring at him. Moments later, his mother was awakened by his screams for help and the sounds of furniture being overturned in her son's bedroom. Gene was begging his mother to save him. When she finally wrenched the locked door open, she saw Gene curled up in fear on his bed, his room in shambles, and Robert the doll sitting at the foot of the bed. Robert did it were the only words Gene could get out. The same words he would use many times throughout his childhood when something strange, mysterious, or destructive would happen. Neighbors claimed they saw Robert looking at them from the top window of the Otto's house and would then move on its own. And it continued getting weirder still. Gene's parents would often hear their son upstairs talking to the doll and getting a response back in a totally different voice. They reported seeing the doll speak and witnessing his expression change. Giggling and sightings of Robert running up the steps were also reported. Robert continued to live with Gene throughout his lifetime, and after he moved back into the family home with his wife Anne, Gene decided the doll needed a room of his own. Anne felt uneasy with Robert in the house and wanted Gene to lock the doll up in the attic where he could do no harm. Gene conceded, but Robert the doll was not happy with that arrangement. Soon, visitors to the home would hear footsteps in the attic, the sounds of someone pacing back and forth, and devilish giggling. Neighborhood children reported seeing Robert watching them from the window in the upstairs bedroom. They told accounts of the doll actually mocking them as they walked to school. When Gene heard this, he immediately went to investigate, knowing he had locked Robert in the attic and there was no way he could be sitting by the window of the upstairs bedroom. But to his shock, when he opened the door to the bedroom, there was Robert sitting in the rocking chair by the window. Gene locked Robert back up in the attic several times, each time discovering him again sitting by the window in the same upstairs bedroom. Well, Gene Otto died in 1974, and when a new owner moved into the house on Eaton Street, their 10-year-old daughter was delighted to find Robert the doll in the attic. But that soon ended when she claimed Robert was alive and that the doll wanted to hurt her. She awoke often in the middle of the night screaming in fear and told her parents that Robert had moved about in the room. Myrtle Reuter bought Eugene's house next, with Robert still there after the sale of the house. Reuter reported often finding Robert in an entirely different place than where she left him. Visitors to her new home didn't like Robert and found that he'd appear and disappear at will. She and her visitors also claimed that the already creepy expression on Robert's face appeared to change when anyone discussed Eugene in a negative way. In 1994, Reuter donated Robert to the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida where he still resides today. Robert the doll sits inside a glass case, but it doesn't seem to stop him from inflicting fear and distress on museum staff and visitors. Staff report Robert's facial expressions change. They hear demonic giggling and have seen Robert put his hand up to the glass. They also claim Robert has been found in different positions within his case. Many guests have reported their cameras becoming inoperable when they tried to take a picture of Robert, only to begin working again when they left the museum. People who disrespect Robert the doll report days, weeks, or months of problems, accidents, strange occurrences, and misfortune. 
In fact, the walls of Robert's display are littered with letters from visitors apologizing for their behavior while visiting the museum. We've all experienced it, that eerie feeling that something or someone is watching us. But an inanimate object actually coming alive? Well, in Key West, many have not only experienced that feeling, but have also witnessed the paranormal when viewing Robert the doll. So there are your five top Florida paranormal stories. The Sunshine Skyway Bridge Ghost, The Skunk Ape, The Gulf Breeze UFO Case, The Haunted St. Augustine Lighthouse, and The Uber Weird Robert the Doll. There are many purported haunted bridges in the world, even others in the state of Florida. But the Sunshine Skyway stands out. Why? Because of the frequency of encounters on a heavily traveled modern span. The Skunk Ape may be another Bigfoot story, but if it is, it illuminates a distinctly different creature, smaller and more timid and secluded than its Pacific Northwest cousin. The Gulf Breeze UFO case was not without its critics. In 1990, after Walters and his family moved, the new owners of Walters' house discovered a styrofoam model UFO hidden in the attic. It matched his photos very closely. When confronted about the model, Walters claimed it had been planted in the attic. He maintained the photos and the encounters were real. So were the Gulf Breeze sightings a hoax? Maybe. There are fierce supporters on both sides of the issue. And others reported seeing UFOs in the area at that time, though none with the fantastic claims made by Walters. It should also be noted that Florida reports more UFO sightings than any state other than California. And then there is Robert the Doll, one of the creepiest stories I've come across. Regardless of the improbable original story of a voodoo curse on the doll, it is the many reported sightings of strange happenings associated with it that truly stand out. And like the Annabelle doll of Ed and Lorraine Warren, it would appear that this doll is still actively engaging with those it comes in contact with. So if you are entertaining a visit to the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida to see it, be cautious and be polite to Robert the Doll. Postscript. Remember some of those other creepy stories I briefly mentioned at the start of our show? One of them really grabbed my attention, and maybe it did you too. It was the Devil's Chair, so I thought I'd briefly tell you about it. Casadega is a small, unincorporated settlement in Volusia County. It's known for two unusual things. Being called the psychic capital of the world due to a large number of psychics and mediums who have made their home there, and for the Devil's Chair. Located in a small cemetery, the Devil's Chair is a wide brick bench, legend has it, built by Satan himself. Each night at midnight, legend says the devil returns to lounge in his chair. Local folklore says if you sit on it, he whispers evil suggestions to you, and you're forever haunted by the experience. An even weirder particular of the folklore is this. If you leave a full can of beer on the chair, unopened, and return the next morning, the can will be empty, and often still unopened. There's no report, however, on what particular brew the devil favors. Well, in our next episode, we're going to encounter the Pontianic, 
It's known in Malay and Indonesian culture as a vampiric ghost. Some say these deadly spirits are that of women who died during childbirth. They're very active at night, while during the day, the Pontianic spirits reside inside banana trees. Pontianics locate their prey by sniffing clothes that are left out to dry. They kill their victims by digging their sharp nails into the victim's stomach and devouring their organs. They usually announce their presence through baby cries. It's said that if the cry is loud, she is far away. But if it's soft, then she's nearby. They're described as pale-skinned with long hair and dressed in white. They also have long, sharp nails and an awful stench. This is one scary creature, folks. And you'll be meeting the Pontianic up close next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Yeah, quiz time. Here we go. Where was the Michigan Dogman first sighted? Was it A, Copper Mountain? B, Richfield Township? C, Moorestown? Or D, Wexford County? Once again, where was the Michigan Dogman first sighted? Was it Copper Mountain? Richfield Township? Moorestown, or Wexford County? And the answer is... D. Wexford County. The Michigan Dogman is a werewolf or werewolf-type creature first reported in 1887 in Wexford County, Michigan. Sightings have been reported in several locations throughout Michigan, primarily in the northwestern quadrant of the Lower Peninsula. That first sighting of the Michigan Dogman in 1887 in Wexford County occurred when two lumberjacks saw a creature whom they described as having a man's body and a dog's head. Very werewolfish, right? In 1938 in Paris, Michigan, Robert Fortney was attacked by five wild dogs and said that one of the five walked on two legs. Reports of similar creatures also came from Allegan County in the 1950s and in Manistee and Cross Village in 1967. Linda S. Godfrey, in her book, The Beast of Bray Road, compares the Manistee sightings to a similar creature sighted in Wisconsin that became known as the Beast of Bray Road. It seems to be very similar to the Michigan Dogman. In 1961, a night watchman was patrolling a manufacturing plant in Big Rapids, Michigan, when he saw a peculiar figure. At first, he thought it was a person, until he saw the dog-like features. He pulled his gun and was about to shoot when he remembered his camera and took it out instead. He snapped a picture of the horrific beast, but the photo has never been properly analyzed, so the potential photographic evidence unverified, contributes to the unsolved mystery of the Michigan Dogman. Since it is a well-known and important cryptid, we'll be giving the Michigan Dogman his own episode later this season, right here on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. 
I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by. <laughs>